0: Recorded live.
1: Hi, welcome to and
2: Community Call. Uh, Call is all about the antagonists, as well as uh, talking about uh, past U.S. non-consensual human experimentation. We'll be reading an article
1: that was uh, written in uh, twenty eleven by NBC News. We'll also be playing a video called Declassified Human Experiment. And so this is a very this is a very, very important subject as, as far as TIs TI are concerned. As we are being experimented on um using energy weapons as well as using psychological uh
2: technology, okay. Um that is used
1: to uh, try to uh, and try and break the targets of the human being, uh, the human target mind, uh, mindset, to see if they can be conditioned to act and think negatively. And uh, I guess most cases we are conditioned that way. And to also experiment on the public in terms of, see if they will participate and go along with the destruction of a human being. And I think the way how from my experience and being that I'm a target, I've been a target for over uh, thirteen years, knowing knowingly, uh I should say I've probably a target way longer than that, but knowingly, um, for the past thirteen years, I think what they do is that they try to set the targets up or they set the target up, and then try to silence the target into not talking about uh, what is being done to them, okay? And when the target starts talking about it, they launch some type of investigation, right? And this investigation is on the false pretense, but it gives them the, uh, I should say, the authority, Uh, there's the the noise campaign again. You know, every time I do my show, that's what happens. Uh, But it gives them the authority to say, well, you know what, this person is under investigation for whatever reason, and so therefore that is part of the experimentation, right? And so uh, that is a way of them uh, getting the general public to participate into their targeting. Uh, and so that's one way of how to do things. Another way is that uh, they may select the target because you might they may consider you a threat, okay? So if you're an organizer, if you're a whistleblower, um, they don't like that those kinds of personality traits. They don't like that kind of, of mentality because, you know, you're basically going against the law. You're not a follower. Your your strong will, and so they want to break your will down. They want to break you down, and all for them to do that again is to run a psychological campaign against you. Okay, and so they will try to discredit you in whatever manner, shape, or fashion they see fit. And you talk about I'm talking about discrediting, and if you're a target, you know that the type of discrediting that they'll do. So they will use some of the most heinous and vile Uh,
2: sort of um, uh,
1: uh, rumors, okay, against the target, right? They will try to break you down psychologically by using uh, direct energy weapons uh, to try to subdue your personality, right? So that you don't talk to other people, you don't influence other people into that way of thinking into thinking freely into having a free mind thinking freely and speaking out against injustice uh and basically not afraid to take on the authorities within the society right so once they see that trait in you they have to try and take it out all right or at least subdue it and that's another way um also because they want to test out these uh these weapons, they want to test out these direct energy weapons, these crowd control weapons. Uh, let me give you an example, right? So, the past week, they've been targeting me a lot.
0: I mean, a lot.
1: And usually, when I'm driving, I usually, uh, um, I live in Brooklyn. So, when I drive, uh, if I'm taking uh, Linden Boulevard here in Brooklyn and I turn onto Albany Avenue, there's a street. There's actually there's two streets that, before you reach the stoplight, which is on Rutland Road. Right before that, there's a the street. I forgot the name of the street, but I usually turn on there. And there's always people out there, right? On this particular uh, day, right. And it, was, it wasn't late, you know. Uh, it was it was at night. Uh, I think it was probably like around maybe a um, little after maybe nine o'clock or so. I'm on my way, driving on my way home, and there's a police van, two police car parked up, and there were three police officers standing. Uh, in the street, basically. So, as soon as I turned on there and they saw me coming, one of them took out his cell phone, uh, you know, kind of like put it up so I can see it, and then he puts it back in his pocket, okay? Now, there was another officer who was dressed. He had a white shirt. I guess he might be a sergeant or a captain or have you. He turns his his back towards me, right? And then the female officer now She kind of like gave me a signal in which they'll, because, you know, sometimes they condition you certain way. So, for instance, a lot of times they'll, uh, a lot of the perps on the street, the civilian perps, they will walk in front of you and then they will place their hands against their back with their palm of their hands facing towards you. So, when you're conditioned that way, so now they can target you in in that manner. So, now they don't have to put their palms behind their back. All they have to do is maybe hold their hand up to their their forehead, you know. But they have their palms facing towards you, right? So they can. So so she did she did that, and I was just like whatever. And I I as I drove past, I act I kind of like took my middle finger, and I wear these air these um these earbuds, right? They're, they're wireless, and and I stick my my middle finger like if I'm pushing it in my ears, and so. When they saw me do that, they they turned around and looked away. Okay. So what that shows me is that, you know, when they at this level of targeting you psychologically, that if you target them back, that it has an effect on them. Right? So that's what I do. So when they up to targeting the psychological harassment targeting, I respond in those ways and I see that, you know, they either look me up opposite direction or you know, they'll turn around so that they won't see the signal, the signals that I'm trying to get them back, right? So that's what they do, a bunch of cowards. So anyway, um, so I I get home, right, parked, and uh, there was a parking space on the bus, but I, I knew they had, you know, because usually at that time of night there was no parking space. But if they want me to park a particular uh, parking space, because, they again, it's all part of their, their psychological campaign, right they'll um they'll leave an empty space there so an empty space was at the end of the block right and again so i parked uh behind i parked in front i was, I was in front so i parked in front it was parked on like why wow, There's a parking space there but again because of the way they targeted me i expected it to be a parking space that's why because i had passed two parking space and i was like you know what i'm not going to park here um, because I probably know they, they're going to have a park space for me on the block, right? So, usually, it, it's, if I'm parking behind, when they talk me like me that much, and I'm on my way home, and I'm parking behind, I need to park in a car with the number 32 in the license plate. Uh, either it will be a black vehicle, the color black, or a gray vehicle, the color gray, right? So, th- that is how uh, they try to, again, target you when they're using these kind of psychological tactics. Okay. And so I'm like, okay, well, you know, I mean, it was, uh, I was like, Hey, I got a focus space anyway, so I'm going to take it. Right. And I uh, interested. So, you know, I went to my, my doctor, a medical doctor, because for my back and I had a form from my, uh, from the disability uh, office that I needed to take a look at. Okay. And, um, he was like, well, don't fill it out. So I'll take a look at it, and then I'll just advise you on how to fill it out. So I get there early. This is past Saturday. Today's the 27th. So uh, this is, what,
2: the 24th? Today's Tuesday. Um, yeah, but the
1: 24th, the Saturday. So I get to the office early. Yeah, And I mean, early, it's kind of like, he usually gets there like around four o'clock in the afternoon. And he there till you know, minister was like, right. I mean, that's just a private practice. He works at the hospital as a surgeon. And so I get there early, right? Find my name. And, you know, there was a lot of people on the sheet in front of me. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to find my name. I'm already in the car. But then I was like, you know what? I probably got a... a a couple hours wait, you know, Maybe so I know there were like eighteen people in front of me. So I said, okay, I might have another about a two, three hour wait. So like I cannot sit down on the um the chairs that they have in it because it's too upright and it's not comfortable. Whenever I sit on those chairs for any more than I would say twenty minutes, my back uh starts to tighten and is you know, then I have to like try to get up, which is very uncomfortable and I have to walk very very slow but my back. my back is my back kinda of locks up on me. I said, okay, I'll get back to the car. I drove home. And, um, you know, I was like, you know what? Let me call my mother and ask um, what, because she, 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 she uses the same doctor, too. She's a medical MD. And I said, you know, uh, when you get, because she usually goes about the same time, about that same time, 5, 5.30. So she's like, well, you know, there's usually not a lot of people there at that time. So I said, well, there's a lot of people there now. So uh, she's like, okay, I'll call you back. So she called the doctor, because I said, I didn't see the doctor there when I walked in. I didn't even see his uh, assistant. And so she called the and She was like, Well, I think like, his assistant said that you signed the wrong sheet. So I, I I'm like, What do you mean I signed the wrong sheet? I'm pissed off now because when I got into the office, there was another lady there and she had asked me for me to see the doctor. I said, Yes. So she gave me the sheet. So I said, Okay, you know, why, you know, how is that, why would she give me the wrong sheet? So anyway, I went back there, went to the doctor now, you know, uh, got back in the office, finally saw her secretary, said to her, Well, you know, I think the other lady gave me the wrong sheet, and she was like, well, uh, she gave me the sheet and I uh, looked at it, and she was like, yeah, this is a sheet. So I was like, oh, so that she said, your mom called, and, um, you know, I told her you signed the wrong sheet. I'm like, well, you know, why would you tell her that, you know? If you know I signed the right sheet, you just gotta, all you got to do is look at the sheet and see that, okay, so yeah, Nigel signed the right sheet, and and that's that, right? But it's because they wanted to get me to that point of, you know, try to aggravate me, right? And I was a little bit upset, and, you know, so anyway, got home. She was like, well, you know, put your number down, and I'll call you when you're ready. I said, I'll wait in the car, or I'll, I'll just go home, because I know I've got a couple of hours before, uh, you know, eight, um, you can call me in. And I said, yeah, I can understand the situation. I'm not back at the whole thing, right? And she goes, that's fine. That's fine. You know, she's like, you know, just put your number down, and I'll call you. Now, mind you, this is like around minutes or six in the afternoon. So I get home and you know I'm just relaxing and you know, eight o'clock they didn't get a call, nine o'clock they didn't get a call, ten o'clock they didn't get a call. So I went down there at ten thirty, I went down there. And um, and I said to her, I said, Well, you know, you didn't call me, what's the hold up? She's like, Well, you know, you have to wait. I'm like, Okay, fine, whatever, right? Went back outside, they didn't go back home, I was in the car and I was on the phone with Alba. For two hours I was there waiting. She didn't call me. Finally, I said, you know what? I said that. And this was like half, minutes to one o'clock. And I was like, you know what? I'm going back in the office. i back in the office. And then, so they left the sheet out, right? So I can see. Basically, left the sheet as I can see it. So because, you know, they're probably going to piss me off. And they was hoping that I'll have some type of, you know, explosive reaction and curse of or whatever. So on the sheet, were there were 34, 35 people on the sheet, right? Number, I'm number 19. Okay, so number 20 went already. Number 21 went already. Number 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27 I already checked. They already went in. right? 27, 28, 29, check, right? Then I'm like, hey, what's going on here? So I'm, still, I'm on the phone with Alba and She's like, you know, put me on speakerphone. <laughs> so I put Alvin on speakerphone. Alvin just kept going off about my house. You know, it's a tragedy that, you know, they have you written this long. You know, it's like that, that office is highly compromised, and I will be careful because they're probably, um, you know, giving out your personal medical record. you know. So she was, uh, she was saying it loud as hell on the phone, how do I speak the phone. The minute I start talking and saying all that stuff, they called me in, right. So I'm like, wow, okay. So if I had if I had not put Alba on the phone, okay, I would probably be the last person that, and this is what they do right and i know this doctor he's a family member but his assistant and others again another system both of them they're both compromised okay both of these uh assistants of his are highly compromised one of them uh, her name is ray whenever i have to go for her go to her to get a form filled out so i can get an an mri or an x-ray done it takes her at least a month before I can get that form. I call I call her, you know, multiple times during the week, and she always tells me, oh, just that it? Give me a second. And I call back the next day. She's like, oh, you know, I forgot about it. Just I'll call you when it's done. And then she don't call me. For weeks and weeks and weeks, she don't call me. Finally, I have to call the doctor and say, listen, this is ridiculous. Okay? I'm waiting for this form to be filled up that you gave her, that you gave her from uh, to, uh, that task for her to do, right, for me. Okay? And she's not doing it. I'm hearing all these excuses as to why she's not doing it. Okay? So, you know, at this point I was like, you know what, maybe let's just go see another doctor. But I know that's exactly what they want. And they're using her to do what she's doing to me so that I can get frustrated enough so I can go and see another doctor. Right? So anyway, uh that back home and this is I got back home at you know, I left there after one o'clock. Okay, when I got home, it was like uh, minutes to two o'clock at night in the morning. Okay, on a Saturday. Now, mind you, like I said, I was there from five thirty. Had my name signed on the sheet. She went home, came back, and then she told me. Leave a number. I'll call you. You know when you're when it, when um when it's your turn. Okay, and I remember I was number nineteen on the sheet. Okay, we had over thirty people there. Okay, so anyway. The morning, the Sunday morning, the doctor calls me now, and he's like, you know, you know, you seem a little uh, upset and agitated. I said, yes, I am. You know, so I was thinking, to you're you taking all your medicines, this and that. And yeah, what? It has nothing to do the medicine. See, what it is, these people they try to make every excuses for their behavior, okay, and try to put it on you, okay. Every excuses for their behavior, try to put it on you, right? And so I got, you know, I was just frustrated. I was like, you know, whatever. I was like, and, I, and I explained him, I said, this is the reason why I'm upset. I was a little upset, okay? The fact that I had to wait and wait for that long. I said, so then it doesn't matter if I come in at five o'clock in the afternoon or, you know, um, one o'clock at night or 12, 12 o'clock at night, right? Because, you know, she's not going to call me. I'm going to be waiting, waiting, waiting. Anybody else is going to go before me, you know? And then they, they when I get upset, they're like, oh, you know, why are you getting upset? Which you mean why I'm getting upset? Anybody would get upset. But because you're the target, okay, they're trying to make you seem like, oh, you can't get upset. You're not supposed to get upset.
2: But yeah, I, I get upset and i trust,
1: okay, because it's my right to do that. Especially if I feel like I'm being treated unfairly. Okay? So, I mean, that's, that's what shit doesn't do, you know? And then the police now, because uh, I, I, I went to pick up the kids from their mom on Sunday. And, you know, I noticed that she, you know, she, they, whenever they target me and then they use her to target me, uh, if I have to, um, you know, because at that time when they use her to target me, I just leave. So, you know, it's going to get into a big argument between me and her. And trust me, you know, she can she can get very, uh, you know, to the, you know, there's some women can like me to the point where you just want to, like, just smack the crap out of them. Not just women, but men too. And so, you know, I I had to leave. Okay, so I leave. That's what I do. And that's the best way to to avoid any kind of conflict, Especially if you're a target living with someone, and they're using that person to target you. Okay, is that you have to learn to just you know just just walk away. It's not even worth it. because You know exactly what they want you to do, right? So they can call the cops and put you in handcuffs. Or call them. Yeah, obviously they can put you in a in 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 the uh, mental institution. Okay. That's exactly what they want. So I, I just walk away. So, you know, and this, was, this happened during the week last week. And, we just, and I just laughed. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to go home in a couple of days, you know, see if they if they're calm things down with my target. And, and so, you know, I can't up the kids on Sunday because she had she's going to school for nursing. She had a test she wants to do. It. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll take I'll the kids for the night. And I, 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 every time that happens, you know, and it's a pattern that I see all the time. It's a pattern. So I, I already know the pattern down, down pat. So whenever I come to pick up the kids, what they'll do is that she'll stall. She'll stall until they can get a police car to uh, be on the block when she comes downstairs to drop the kids off. Okay? It's I like you think I'm going to, like, you know, <laughs> I guess go crazy and, and beat the crap out of her. But I don't hit women. I've never hit women. You know, I've been accused of hitting someone, which I didn't do, when that's because it was a setup to try to uh, get me to drop uh, the custody uh, um, case that I filed for my son, for my older son. So I've been accused of that. But I have never hit a woman. The woman has put their hands on me. But I don't put my hands on I don't hit women at all, okay? Unless it's, you know, something like this, if they hit me in a certain manner or in a certain place and it hurts like a bitch, yeah, you know what? Yeah, you will get slapped back, okay? Because I'm not gonna have that. But anyway, so I always notice this. I always notice. This. So they always call. I, even like tonight, we, you know, I'm here. You uh, know, we got a little argument, and within a few seconds of the argument, you should start hearing the police sirens. Just because, again, they're listening to, our con- to my conversation through the implants, okay? And it's not the phone. All right they're not listening to the phone, they're listening directly to because of the implant and the remote remote monitor, and also you know to viewing uh inside the apartment using the technology that they use to see through the walls so again you know uh, and and it, the you know the 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 idiotic thing about them doing that is like you know if I was really the type of person where they tried to portray me out to be. You know, the silence wouldn't make a difference. Them looking at it would make a difference, okay? Because if I was to do something you know, horrific, you know, that wouldn't stop me, right? But, again, you know, it is what they want the public to believe. It is what they want the public to say. They say, well, you know, we have him under surveillance, and we look at he can't do nothing, right? That is what they want the public to believe. They want the public to believe that they are... Uh, somehow controlling, you know, my actions. In some cases they do do that because of the uh the technology that's being used, you know, the micro the microwave weapons, uh and the migration technology, but it is not to the point where, you know, they can get me to uh do something in which, you know, will be detrimental for anyone around me and even myself. And uh, because I'm aware of it now. You know, I'm aware of it so it's not gonna happen. And mm-hmm. So it's one of the things that that they do, right? So, you know, these people are ridiculous, Like right? Even today, you know, uh, after school, uh, actually yesterday, um, you know, when I, I had... Okay, I'm, uh, yes, I guess I'm going to put you on mute because uh, I'm doing the recording. Okay, so, um, you know, I was, th- I was just thinking out loud. I wasn't thinking nothing. You know what, if my son, um, you know, he has school sneakers than he has his other sneakers that he wears when he's out of school, right? So the sneakers that he was in, he was like, daddy, you know, I'm like, the sneakers is tight. It's hurting my foot, hurt. okay? So, you know, of course, in my mind, I'm like, well, you know, if foot is getting bigger, I need to get him a new pair of sneakers, okay? So today, after I went to pick up from school, we went to the Models right here on Church Avenue. And of course, you know, they know that I'm going because we remote, remote, monitor so they already have everything set up there right so from, from the minute i i um walk into the model you know i think what is that they're telling the public because again they want to make them believe that they have some type of special powers or what have you right especially their religious folks who believe in you know in um you know, oh you know uh, they may have some type of psyche it isn't they don't have to psyche. okay it's technology that they use all right it basically they, they, you know, listen to your conversation, they read your mind, read your thoughts, right? And they have the public believing that the technology doesn't exist. Or they know that it, it exists, right? But they've given them uh, some type of false reason to not say anything, you know, about what's being done, right? So if you're, if they, if you're implanted with a microchip, especially for uh, remote monitoring, they may say, well, okay, look, this person's under investigation, so we need to know, right? Or they may say, this person may go up, is going to do something really terrible, so we need to know, right? And, you know, the, uh, they may say, well, you know, this person is, you know, especially with the religious community, they like to use, you know, oh, well, these people are evil or they're Satanist or what so have you. So, you know, we need to do this to them, you know? And so I, today I got the feeling that that's what <laughs> they were doing, you know, because when the people – who are targeting me on the street, you know, they, like I said, they're was going into models so they, so they have the, the perks coming to Models, walking around, you know, not buying nothing, but always walking over in my area looking, uh, you know, they send these females coming in there looking, you know, and you know, so, like I said, the minute that they see me they start with a target. So I know that they're not into the buying That's what they do, right? But I handle it pretty well, you know. So Like I said, the minute they start doing that I started targeting them back and again they don't like that so they end up leaving. Right? So um, then his mother calls me on the phone, and she's like, oh, you know, I'm the back blah, 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 right? And again, uh, so I'm like, okay, well, I'm in what else? So she's going yeah, to in the And then they we're well, we left with more else, you know, targeting on the street, and we had it, you see, you have to go to Walgreens to get a prescription, so you end to the Walgreens, and uh, the minute I up the Walgreens, that's it. But let we go back a little bit. Before I walked into Walgreens, they were on the side of Walgreens. There was a homeless person sitting there. So, you know, the minute that I knew the homeless person, you know, they started touching their nose. Right? They started touching their nose. And we get into details. and now they have her, the kid's mom, targeted me. Right? And so I was like, okay, I see how, you know, I see, you, see, you, you go through this so much you know, almost every single day on a daily basis, you know, you kind of get to, ex- you know, you know what to expect, right? And so that's what happened. And so on my way back, you know, police sirens, you know, all that stuff, and, you know, I'm like, wow. <laughs> you know, and then they had some idiot standing in the middle of the, the firewall, okay? Staring at his phone, you know, literally staring at his phone, you know, and as I walk past, he uh, you know, yeah, you know, he wasn't calling He wasn't speaking to anybody. He was like basically just looking at his phone. He wasn't pressing no buttons, no numbers. He just literally stood up there like a zombie staring at his phone. And as I got close to him, he takes his phone and he puts it back in his pocket. All right. So this is what they do: the telephone phone targeting. Okay. And basically, what it is is that they basically saying that, well, you know, your phone is bugged. All right. So we now have. Uh, permission, or what have you, to bug your phone. Now, as a party, you I'll tell you this. Any way you're going, if you go into a store with a video camera, they will try to make you not go into those kind of stores, because they will do things to try to make you feel like they're, they're that you're being watched through those store cameras, which you probably are, but that shouldn't stop from going into any store with a camera, all right? One thing they try to do is they try to make you act suspicious in a suspicious way. Okay, and the reason why they want you to act like that and you're conditioned to act like that is because, again, they want to shape the narrative, right? So if you act suspicious, then you must be guilty of whatever it is that they claim that that you did, right? And even if you were guilty of whatever they claim that you did, okay, it is because you have been conditioned, you have been manipulated into doing that, what it is that they said that you did. So, you know, at, at this point, you just have to be like, you know what? They're the one that did that. Okay? Not me. Okay. They're the ones that did that. And had they not manipulated, had they not did this or did that, that wouldn't have happened. They're the ones that did it. So you have to understand that and realize that. Okay, and stop being afraid. Alright, so uh you know, and that was it. I you know, I came home and again you know, to call me so we got into an argument tonight. Uh, and uh, you know, and I was like that's it. You know, I can't, you know, like I said, I just end the conversation right there. Like I, I can't. I'm not going to deal with nonsense and foolishness. and then try to target me when I, you know, say you know you better cut that t- cut out that target shit. It's like, well, I'm not doing nothing. yes, you are. You know what she's doing. She knows exactly what she's doing. Okay, I've been around her long enough to know that I know what she's doing. Okay, I'm very observant as a as a target. You have to be when you get to know people's behavior. Okay, and I showed sure her more hers. Okay, I keep telling all the, all the time. I said, I know you better than you know yourself. If She don't believe me, but trust me, I do. So, you know, and that was that, you know, but heavy targeted. Uh, in the beginning of the show, if you listen to the recording, you can hear the fire truck uh, coming out again. Um, you know, but this is what they do. They kind of quiet down a little bit now, but, um, you know, uh, let's see if they, if they strike it up again and see what happens. So anyway, that was my week, you know. And oh, well, for one more thing, uh, before I go, uh, I I'm to. I'm if you're a parent, if you're targeting a your parent and you have a child in school, whether the elementary, junior high, or high school, this is you know they use the the the, the staff in those educational uh, surroundings to target you, right? And they will target you through your child teachers to the staff members to the office members. Okay, so this is this this is this is how they try to target me, um this past week. Now uh I signed up my son for Boy Scout, okay? And last week uh, was supposed to be his first day in Boy Scout last week Tuesday because um he had went Tuesday but then they called me saying that they was He's in the office, because there's no boy Scouts. So I'm like, okay, you know, why didn't anybody say anything? And they were like, well, we said it Monday on the PA. I'm like, okay, so you said that there's no anybody, any kid in 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 Boston, there's no boy scout on Tuesday. Now he's six years old, okay. Same as other kids. There, you know, these kids are six years old, okay. You announce that there's no boy Scouts in the PA. You know, not every child going to go home and say, you know what, mom, dad, there's no boy Scouts tomorrow, okay. I mean, if you're the school administrator, if you're the school official, and you know there's no boy stop, You have the parents' number, okay? And they'll do this for any other um, thing that happens in the school, okay? They'll call you or leave you a message, right? Because they have a, their computer does it, right? Somehow they didn't do it, right? Neither did they put a note in his in his um, folder to say, well, you know, if your child is in, Boy Scout, there's no Boy Scout today. And this was last Tuesday, right? Because somehow they said, Well, we're changing the Boy Scout on um, the on the form that says Boy Scout would be held on Monday, which is supposed to be last week was the um last week Monday was the nineteenth and they were like, Well it's going to be held Tuesday on the twentieth and the chess club which is supposed to be on Tuesday is going to be switched to Monday. So I'm like, Okay fine. So you missed you know, you didn't get to go, but they cancelled it. So Monday, which was you know, um, the
2: 25th, okay, uh, you know, I'm like, okay, so I'm thinking, you know,
1: he has Boy Scouts. His mom called midday to make sure that he has Boy Scouts, okay? The person that's in the office, right, the main office on the school said yes. There is boys uh, at the school today, which was a Monday, right, the twenty sixth. So, I get a call at um, that I went to the gym, and I had just came back from the gym. I think I left the gym like three o'clock. So I just came back to the gym, came home, came to my house because I'm staying here for the week. Took a shower, and got the shower, and I was, I'm about to
2: eat. if I get a call, right? It's a call from the school
1: saying that, uh, no, I'm sorry, his mom got the call, saying that um, he's in the office waiting because there's no Boy Scout today. Okay, so let let me say this.
2: School over at 240, right?
1: The person in charge of the Boy Scout clubs and the chess club, he did not tell the school officials during the school hours that they were canceling Boy Scouts. He did not tell that to the
2: school officials, right, in no the office. So I go there, and I'm like, um, "What? how come there's no, no Boy Scouts? The people in the office were like, we don't know. They never told us. Like, what do you mean they never told you? They never told us
1: you like, well, you can go talk to the person who's in charge of that. Went upstairs, and I go up there, and it's a Spanish guy, you know, kind of big guy. And, you know, he's like, so oh, I apologize and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And you know, But I knew it was, he was good targeting. But the minute I walked in there, you know, and I was the, you know, the thing is that with them is that I'm sure they call other, uh, 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 you know, told other kids'
2: parents way before, right, because
1: they would have been more kids in the office, right? There would have been a lot more kids in the office. So he finally had Boy Scout today, which was uh, yesterday, which was a Tuesday, and there was quite a few kids in there. So when they called me, which was Monday, right, when they are supposed to have the Boy Scout, they called me at minutes like 3.30. 3.30. In the friggin' afternoon, right when they know that there was no boy scout, okay, and like I said, school over at two forty. So he went into the lunchroom, right? There's no boy scout. They could have called. They could have called. They had forty minutes to call me,
2: okay, but they never did. Or oh, fifty minutes, but they
1: never did. They never did. They waited until they have everything set up, okay. And then they're like, okay, let's call and have Mr. Nicholson come down and so we can talk to him. i mean, send him a, 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 a little message what you want to send them. So speaking to the person, I'm like, listen, you, know, you guys can't be doing this, okay? And he's like, well, you know, um, you know, with some mix-up or have you, and they keep talking about the chess club. And he's like, oh, the chess club, you know, they had 10 things to do what have you, so such. And I'm like, what does that have to do with Boy out? The chess club is on is on um, on Tuesdays. Oh, um, yeah. Well, you know, we switched it. You know, so I'm like, what What do you mean you switched it? Without even telling the parent, you switched it again, right? So you have my child sitting in the office for 50 minutes, okay? Because you decide last minute, right? and which you didn't even tell the school officials. So that's when you know it's fishy. So right there, when, when they told me that that they didn't notify them that Boys Club uh, uh, was canceled on Monday and is now being held on Tuesday, I was like, OK, let me go see exactly what it is that they were going to do, what, what kind of subliminal message they're trying to send me. All right. So I already knew. From the time the people in the office said that they did not notify them that uh, the Boys Club was, was council and was now being held on Tuesday, which originally were, which was supposed to be held on. I knew right there. I was like, okay, let me go see what kind of bullshit they want to pull. And like I said, speaking to this guy, and he's talking about the chess club. I'm like, wait a minute. I said the chess club is on Monday. I mean, I'm sorry, the chess club is on Tuesday because they switched it. And I said, well, you know, he's like, well. Um, I said, yeah, yeah. So what do you talking about the, the chess club? It has nothing to do with board, the board. It's, they're two different days, right? So he's like, well, I said, I said, listen, you know, it's on the, it's on the message. He got a message from the school saying
2: that the boys' club was changed back to Mondays, okay, after being changed from
1: choosing, right? So I'm like, all right, whatever, man. I'm like, come on, you know, it just, I like, you know, if this shit happens again, I want my my money back, and he's not going to go to boys' club boy scout. I just I sent it to the boys and girls club across the street is that the case. You know what I'm saying? And I walked out of there. You know, and of course like I said they tried to target me and answer the phone and nonsense, what have you. And then I got to her building, you know, um down got in, into the elevator. It's funny, I got to the elevator and um here comes this uh this lady. She looks Spanish too. You know, they you know, like I said it, it must be yesterday, must Monday. Um uh, must have been the target in the way in which they use Hispanics in my target. All right, because they'll do that from time to time. Sometimes they'll be strictly Jews, sometimes they will be strictly Hispanics, sometimes it'll be strictly Black, or a mixture of, of of all. And so, you know, got, I I I was like, she got the, she gets out the elevator, right? And you know, she gets out of the elevator. So I get in the elevator. She turns around, stands there, staring at me. Like literally stared at me, you know? I mean, I I I was gonna go up there and say, said, do you do you want a kiss? You know, but I was like, you know, whatever. So, you know, I had that kiss with me. <laughs> so, you know, um uh, we went down the elevator and went upstairs and you know, that was that. And you know, four I did a video I explained the whole thing. The minute the video uploaded into onto YouTube, forget a Day were the Cyrus. they did not want me talking about what they just did because on my way back home, they were walking towards me, closing me out, looking at my son. I like, trying to send me a threat. Like, if I talk, they're going to do something to him. And blah, blah blah blah, They're going to target him. Uh, and then in my video, I was like, let me tell you something. Anyone, of y'all, mother, Fs, do anything to my child. Okay? And y'all are going to be a different person. Okay? And they're going to be cool, calm, and like Nigel before. When it comes to my kids, I'm not going to pray that. And so, you know, that was that. That was that, right? So these people, I guess, are just, uh, are just absolutely ridiculous. And again, you know, they get their their, their cues from the police. The police is who controls them. These are these you have to understand the target that the gang stalkers are controlled by the police. The police is the one that gives them the information about you, whatever it is. Okay, whatever shit they want to make up about you and then they just set them loose. Right? So for these gang stalkers, right, there is no uh, uh you know, there, there there is no level of of um, accountability for what they're really doing because they don't know that they can get away with it. Or at least they think they can get away with it. Right? Because again, if you're a target and you go gonna complain about this the so police, they're gonna just say, you know what, go see a a a, a medical professional. That's what they're gonna tell you. Again. plausible deniability. They don't wanna look into this stuff because they're the ones that are doing this stuff. Okay? You look at Puerto Pro, How the federal, the FBI, used the state and local police forces to engage in illegal activities. Okay, illegal wiretapping, illegal uh, arrest, false arrest. Uh, you know, the destruction of your property, uh, and and a whole host, a whole host of other stuff. So you know, this, this this the gang stalking. The gang stalkers are controlled by your police force. The police force are the ones that are being controlled by the FBI. They are the ones uh, that are being given some of the technologies from the FBI to use against you, right? So you know, recently here in New York, they're talking about how the NYPD have been using this X-ray van to go around looking into people's homes, and they say, okay, you know, well, we're we're, we're not doing anything illegal, right? Yeah, they're not doing anything illegal because they're not, they, you know, <laughs> they're not giving you the information to say, okay, well, who house are you spying on? Who house are you looking? Again, if everything is, oh, this is classified because, you know what, it's an ongoing investigation. So that's the one they like to use. You know, if you're in the government, you say, oh, it's classified in the matter of national security. If you're the police, oh, it's classified because it's an ongoing investigation. That's what they always say, right? That is their MO to keep these things secret. But you know what? Without the bad, but we know that the technology exists and they do have it, okay? Wait until they find out that the technology exists, in which you can you can be micro-tripped and they can read your thoughts. Right? i we doing can be Microsoft and Tracks. That's
2: not, you know, conspiracy theories. That's fact.
1: Okay? Remote neural monitoring is the next step, ladies and gentlemen. Okay? And I think it'll be a while before they really, before someone dig out the truth. Right? And so, uh, but we as targets, we have to, you know, give our testimony to the it's that they do so that other people can know exactly what it's Even if, you know, they claim that it doesn't exist. We as a party we still have to put our studies on there because we are going to be the evidence that those who are looking into this stuff need to have. All right. Okay, so uh so, so the other part of the to tonight's show is on the ugly path of US human experimentation. And there's an there's an article from NBC News that was dated uh February twenty seventh. 2011, and it talks about uh, the history of illegal non-consensual human experimentation and how the US government have uh, is deeply rooted in this kind of experimentation and the fact that the people who are doing this kind of experimentation you know they they have no conscience. There is no humanity about these people. There's no concern for the subjects who are put into these uh, illegal experimentations. There's no care for these uh, victims of this.
2: And there's definitely no kind of uh, prosecution of the people who are committing these... uh,
1: atrocious experimentation okay and they've continued to get away with it decades after decades of experimenting on hundreds of thousands of people
2: unwillingly non consensual unethical
1: and you know this is it's ridiculous so this is a uh, an article again from 2011 Atlanta Shocking as it may seem, US government doctors once thought it was fine to experiment on disabled people and prison inmates. Such experimentation includes giving hepatitis to mental patients in Connecticut, spreading a pandemic flu virus up the nose of prisoners in Maryland, and injecting cancer cells into chronically ill people in a hospital, in a New York hospital. Much of this historic uh, sorry, horrific history is 40 to 80 years old, but it is the backdrop of a meeting in Washington this week by a presidential bioethics commission. The meeting was triggered by the government apology last fall for federal doctors infecting infected prisoners and mental patients in Guatemala with syphilis 65 years ago. Now, I was at that. My ethics meters and I did give a testimony in terms of what was happening to me at that time. Okay, it still continues to happen to me today. US officials also acknowledged there have been dozens of similar experiments in the United States. Studies have often involved making healthy people safe. An exhaustive review by the Associated Press of Medical Journal reports and decades old press clippings from more than 40 such studies. At best, these were the search for life-saving treatment. At worst, some of the curiosity satisfying experimentation that hurt people but provide no useful results. Inevitably, they will be compared to the well-known Tuskegee syphilis uh, study. In that episode, a U.S. health official tracked 600 black men in Alabama who already had syphilis but did not give them adequate treatment even after penicillin became available. These studies were worse in at least one respect. They violate the first, the concept of first do no harm, which you know doesn't doesn't mean shit if you're a target, right? You know whether you're a, whether you go to a psychiatrist, a doctor, a medical doctor, uh, you go to the hospital. It, they that do no harm crap doesn't apply to targets, right? The fundamental medical pr- principle that sketches back centuries. When you give somebody a disease, even by the standards of their time, you really cross the key ethical norm of the profession, said Arthur uh, Kaplan, director of the University of Pennsylvania Center for Bioethics. Attitudes similar to the Nazi experiments. Some of these studies, mostly from the 1940s to the 60s, apparently were never covered by news media. Others were reported at the time, but the focus was on the promise of enduring new cures, pr- new while glossing over how test subjects were treated. Attitudes about medical research were given were different then. Infectious disease killed many of the people years ago, and doctors worked urgently to invent and test kills. Many prominent researchers felt it was legitimate to experiment with people who did not have full rights in society. People like prisoners, mental patients, poor blacks. It was an attitude in some ways similar to that of Nazi doctors experimenting on Jews. There was definitely a sense if we don't have today, the sacrifice for the nation was important, said Laura Stark, a, w- a Wesleyan university assistant professor of science and society who's writing a book about past federal medical experiments. The AP Review Research The AP review of past uh, research found a federal-funded program study began in 1942, injected experimental flu vaccine in male patients at a state insane asylum in Yosemite, Michigan, then exposed them to flu several months later. It was co-authored by Dr. Jonas Swart, who a decade later would become famous as inventor of the polio vaccine, Some of the men weren't able to describe their symptoms, rising serious concern or question about how well they understood what was being done to them. One newspaper account mentioned the test subjects were senile and illiterate. Then they quickly moved on to the promising results. In in federally funded studies in the 1940s, noted noted researcher, Dr. W. Paul Haven, Jr., exposed men to hepatitis in a series of experiments, including one using patients from mental institutions in Middletown and Norwich, Connecticut. Havens, a World Health Organization expert on viral disease, was one of the first scientists to differentiate types of hepatitis and their causes. In research of various new archive, far more mention of the mental patient study which made eight healthy men ill but broke new, no new grounds to understand the disease. So you see here where it says that there was no um, mention of that, no uh, record of what's being done to these people. And that's the same thing that happening to us as targets, right? So we know what's, what's being done, but they're not keeping any records, right, of what it is that's being done. And if they are keeping the record, they'll surely uh, get rid of it if uh, inquisitive minds are looking to run after the question. Okay. Researchers in the mid 1940s studied the transmission of the deadly stomach pump by having young men swallow unfiltered stool suppression. Oh, that's disgusting. The studies were conducted in the New York State Vocational Institute, a, a reformatory prison in West uh, Kokseki. The point was to see how well disease spread that way as compared to spraying the germs or having test subjects breathe it. Swallowing it was a more effective way to spread the disease, the the researcher concluded. The study doesn't explain if the men were rewarded for this awful task. Another one, the University of Minnesota study in the late 1940s injected 11 public service employees volunteers with malaria then starved them for five days. They were also subject to hard labor, and those men lost an average of 14 pounds. They were treated for malaria fever with quarantine, I'm sorry, with quinine sulfate. One of the authors was Ansel Key, a dietary scientist who developed K-rations for the military and a Mediterranean diet for the Pacific but a search of various new archives found no mention of the study. Again, how did they hide it? You know, keep official records, right? For the study in 1957, when the Asian flu pandemic was spreading, federal researchers sprayed the virus in the north of 23 inmates in Pasadena prison in Jessup, the uh, Maine, I guess, Maryland. To compare the reaction to those of 32 virus-exposed inmates who have been given a new vaccine. Government researchers in the 1950s tried to infect about two dozen volunteer prison inmates with gonorrhea using two different methods in an experiment at a federal penitentiary in Atlanta. The bacteria was was pumped directly into the urinary tract through the penis, according to their paper. The men quickly developed disease, but the researchers noted this method wasn't comparable to how men normally get affected by having sex with an affected part. The men were later treated with antibiotics. The study was published in the Journal of American Medicine Association, but there was no mention of it in various news archives. So people in the study were usually described as volunteer, historians, and uh, ethicists have questioned how well these people understood what was to be done to them and why or whether they were coerced. And a lot of times you are coerced into doing things. And this is what I say in the beginning when I talk about how they try how they'll set you up or trying to set you up in order to coerce you into uh, into silence or you know and into agreeing on being experimented on in such a fashion, right? In however, however way they try to experiment experiment on you. Okay? Prisoners have long been victimized for the sake of science. In 1950, the US government, Dr. Joseph Goldberger, today remembered as a public health hero, recruited Mississippi inmates to go on a special ration to prove his theory that the painful illness, uh, pellagra, was caused by dietary deficiencies. The men were offered, offered pardons for their participation. But studies in prisons were uncommon in the first few decades of the 20th century, and usually performed by researchers considered. Uh, eccentric even by the standard of the day. One was Dr. L. L. Stanley, resident physician at San Quentin Prison in California, who around 1920 attempted to treat older, developed, (coughs) excuse me, developed men by implanting in their testicles from livestock and from recent executed convicts. Newspaper wrote about standard experiments but the lack of outrage is striking. At least they had a lack of you know, you see uh, it was published by the dishwasher and people I guess wasn't really upset about it. makes you know, I guess it is striking because even uh, we are yeah, TI what's happening. The lack of people that are speak that are not speaking on our behalf but what's happening it is rather striking fact, San Quentin Penitentiary in the role of the youth, in the role of the of youth, an institution where the years were made to roll back for men from failing mental mentality and vitality, where the spring is restored to the step, width to the brain, vigor to the muscle, and the brain to the spirit. All this has been done, is being done, by a surgeon with a scalpel beginning one of the rosy reports published in November of nineteen nineteen in the Washington Post. Around the time of World War II, prisoners were enlisted to help the war effort by taking part in studies that could help the troops. For example, a series of malaria studies in Spill Penitentiary in Illinois, and two other prisons designed to test anti malarial drugs that could help soldiers fight in the Pacific. It was about this time that prosecutions for Nazi doctors in 1947 led to the Nuremberg Code, a set of international rules that protect human test subjects. Many US doctors essentially ignored them, urging that they applied to Nazi atrocities, not to American medicine. In the late 1940s to 1950s, saw a huge growth in the US pharmaceutical and health care industry. Accompanied by a boom in personal experimentation funded by both the government and corporation. By the 1960s, at least half of the state allowed prisoners to be used as medical guinea pigs. But two studies in the 1960s proved to be the twi- turning point in the public attitudes towards the way test subjects are treated. <clears throat> the first came to light in 1963. Researchers injected cancer cells into the 19 nineteen oh and Debilitated patient at a Jewish chronic disease hospital in the New York borough of Brooklyn to see if their bodies would reject them. See, I live in Brooklyn, so I'm not surprised at all that didn't happen to me. As a matter of fact, I think most of the targets, the targeted TIs who have reported being uh, harassed and stalked and experimented uh, the way that we are being experimented on, the majority of them live here in New York, all right, particularly New York City around the tri-fars, okay? Um, so let's continue here. The hospital director and the patient were not told they were being injected with cancer cells because there was no need. The cells were deemed harmless, but the experiment upset a lawyer named William Hyman, who sat on the hospital board of directors. The state investigated and the hospital ultimately said any such experiment would require the patient's written consent. At a nearby Staten Island from 1963 to 1966, a controversial medical studies were conducted at the Willowbrook State School for Children with mental retardation. The children were intentionally given uh, hepatitis already and by injection to see if they could be cured from gamma uh, gobelin. Those two studies, along with the Toscee experiments revealed in 1972, proved to be the holy trinity that sparked extensive and critical media coverage and public distrust to Suzanne River, Riverby, the Wesley uh, college historian who first discovered records of Pacific study in Guatemala. By the 1970s, even experiments involving prisoners were considered scandalous. And widely covered congressional hearing in 1973, pharmaceutical industry officials acknowledged they were using prisoners to test them before they were che- because they were cheaper than chimpanzee. Wow. Holmesburg Prison in Philadelphia made extensive use of inmates for medical experimentation. Some of the victims are still around to talk to you about it. Edward Yusef Anthony, featured in a book about the study, said he agreed to have a layer of skin peeled off his back which was coated with certain chemicals to test a drug. He did that for money to buy cigarettes in prison. I said, Oh my God, my back is on fire. Take this. and the bank off me. Anthony said in the interview with the Associated Press, he as he recalled the beginning of weeks of intensive itching and agonizing pain. The government responded with reform. Among them the U.S. Bureau of Prisoners in the mid-1970s effectively exclude all research by drug companies and other outside agencies within federal prisons. As the study of prisoners and mental patients dried up, researchers looked to other countries. It makes sense. Clinical trials could be done more cheaply and with fewer rules, and if and it was easy to find patients who were taking no medication, the fact that could complicate tests
2: for other drugs.
1: Additionally, additional set of ethics, ethical guidelines have been inactive, and few believe that another Guatemala study could happen today. It's not that we're out-infecting anybody with things, Captain uh, said. Well, I totally disagree with that. Okay, still, in the last 15 years, two international studies spark outrage. See? So they say that it's not being done, but again, and this is written in... 2011, so it said uh, the last 15 years. So 2011, we're talking about from uh, 1996, 95 96, to 2011, and even not, right? But again, you know, the dose experimentation has to be uh, exposed, right? So one was likened to Tuskegee. US-funded doctor failed to give the, A- the AIDS drug AZT to so all the HIV-infected pregnant women in the study in Uganda, even though it would have protected their newborns. The U.S. Health official argued the study would answer questions about AZT use in the developing world. So again, you know, we all know that Africa is used as a test ground for a lot of these pharmaceutical uh, drugs, right? And it also created a lot of diseases uh, in Africa, okay, in order to create um, antiviral drugs so that they can bring the disease over to the Western world and they can make money from the uh, the drug that they use to heal or treat the disease, right? I mean, these people have no ethical, uh, no ethics at all, right? They're, they're just after the money, right? The other studies by Pfeiffer, Inc., Gave an antibiotic named Chauvin, the children to children with meningitis in, in Nigeria, although they were dead, but its effectiveness for the disease could explain the experiments for the death of 11 children and the disabling of scores of others. F- uh, Pfizer settled a lawsuit with Nigerian officials for $75 million, but admitted no wrongdoing. Again, I mean, come on, how the hell can you experiment on people, right? Yet. You pay $35 million, but then you don't admit to any wrongdoing. How could that happen?
2: This is the world we're living in, where people
1: can be experimented on, right? The drug companies or the government can get caught, and there's no form of repercussion. There's no punishment, nothing like that. They just throw money at it and say, okay, you know what? Here's X amount of dollars. We admit no wrongdoing. But sort of, how do you get those individual attitudes to change? You don't. Not by allowing them to uh, to not admit what they've done is wrong. Okay. At least if they admit what is wrong, they they might be some sort of change in terms of you know the changing of the way they they think in terms of doing ever doing this again. But when they admit, when you take the money and you, they admit to the wrongdoing, that means that they're going to do it again. They will to do it again, because they know that they can just throw money at it and say, hey, and make it go away, right? And you never have to admit anything, anything wrong, okay? This was the U.S. government. Last year, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Service Inspector General, reported that between 40 to 65% of clinical studies of federally regulated medical products were done in other countries in 2008, and that proportion probably has grown. The report also noted that US regulators inspect fewer than one percent of foreign clinical trial sites. Monitoring research is complicated and the rules are too rigid, could slow new drug development. But it's often hard to get information on international trials, sometimes because of the missing records of the paucity of audits, says Dr. Kevin Trillman, a Duke University professor of medicine who has written on the ethics international studies, syphilis studies. These issues were still being debated when last October, the Guatemala study came to light. In the 1946 to 48 studies, American scientists infected prisoners and patients at a mental hospital in Guatemala with syphilis. Apparently to test whether penicillin could prevent some sexually transmitted disease. The study came up with no useful information and was hidden for decades. So that means that they gave these right? And couldn't kill them, right? Because probably the, the, the penicillin that they were using wasn't strong enough, right? And yet, they came up with no useful information. Okay, so what happened to those people? Not that those people have it, but they will go to sleep with somebody else, they give it to them, right? And the list goes on. So, I mean, it is it is, it is incredible. And the same thing is being happening here today. You know, there are times when I, you know, when I read articles about um, this person with AIDS infecting, you know, over, you know, 100 women or this woman with AIDS infecting over 200 men, you know, I, I know for a fact that these people are being used in an experiment. I know that for a fact, okay? And as a target, you you should know that, too. Whenever you read these kind of articles like that, that's experimentation right there. Okay? And then <clears throat> when they finish, right, when they finish, then they're like,
2: okay, well, let's go arrest this person. Okay? That's what they do. Ladies and gentlemen. That is exactly what they do. Okay. The...
1: The Guatemala study nauseated ethics on multiple levels. Beyond infected patients with a terrible illness, it is clear that people in the study did not understand what was being done to them or were not able to give their consent. Indeed, though it happened at a time when science, scientists were quick to publish research that showed frank disinterest in the rights of study participants, this
2: study was buried in file drawers.
1: It was unusually unethical, at the, even at the time, says Starks, the Western researcher. When the president was briefed on the detail of the Guatemala episode, one of his first questions was whether this sort of thing could still happen today, said Rick West, a spokesman for the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. That has occurred overseas with an opening for the Obama administration to have the bioethics panel seek a new evaluation
2: international medical studies. The president
1: also asked the Institute of Medicine to further solve the Guatemala studies. But the IOM relinquished the assignment in November after reporting its own conflict of interest. So <laughs> really, so let's see. So he talked about the, the Institute of Medicine, right? He refused to further investigate what has what happened in Guatemala, okay? Linguish the assignment because of their own conflicts of interest. So that means that they are still experimenting in Guatemala. Okay. In the nineteen forties, five members of one of the IOM sister organizations played prominent role in federal syphilis research and had links to the Guatemala study. There you go.
2: There you go. So the Institute of Medicine, okay. Or they were involved, directly involved, through one of his members, okay, who were involved in that study.
1: So the Bioethics Commission gets both, both tasks. To focus on federally funded international studies, the Commission has formed an international panel of about a dozen experts in ethics, science, and clinical research. Regarding the studies of the Guatemala studies, The Commission has hired 50 black investigators and is working with additional historians and other consultant experts. The panel is to send a report to Obama Obama by September. Any further steps would be up to the administration. Some experts say that given such a tight deadline, it it will be a surprise if the Commission produce substantial new information about past studies. They face a really tough challenge. And no, they don't. If they just listen to us talking, they would, you know, come and talk to each of us, all right, about what's being done, okay? But they refuse. Why? Because, again, uh, the narrative that's being put out there about targets is that we're all mentally ill and we're crazy, and we are see that's it. But, um, you know, I, I have no question that one day uh, we will be proven right, okay? So that is the end of the uh, article. Uh, let me post it in the chat for those who want to uh,
2: read it. And let's see, there's only uh,
1: two other people here besides me at this moment. Um, it is now going on 12, uh twenty-nine. Okay, so listen, I'm going to play uh, a video um, called uh, Declassified. Human experimentation it is a uh, the, the 45 minutes and 30 seconds video and then, um, you know it just shed a new light
2: on these experimentation that has been happening uh,
1: for what over you know uh, the second half of the uh, 20th century and still
2: goes on today in the 21st century.
3: Hello, I'm Arthur Kent. Welcome to History Undercover. It's well documented that the CIA tested the effects of LSD on hundreds of unsuspecting subjects in the 1950s and that the government withheld treatment from black syphilis victims during the
1: infamous Tuskegee experiment. Not so well known is that many other Americans were used as human guinea pigs. Our program reveals how government agencies expose millions toxic chemicals and radioactivity without permission,
0: and, according to critics, without regard for the potential dangers. Join us as History Undercover presents Declassified Human Experimentation. Declassified documents reveal
1: that from the end of World War II through the Cold War, hidden under a veil of secrecy, the U.S. government performed military tests on large populations.
3: In the late 40s and early 50s, patients were injected with a radioactive substance while in their hospital bed. See, my, my father never told me. I never knew that it, it just happened to him. <laughs> Soldiers were exposed to radiation to test their performance in a nuclear war.
1: In the 1950s, the army released bacteria and chemicals at sea, in the air, and underground.
4: I found out that four of my pals that lived directly across the street from me had all died of cancer. These are four separate families. In
3: 1995, a presidential advisory committee confirmed that for more than three decades, hundreds of thousands of Americans
1: have been unwitting participants in human experimentation.
0: It is a very, very important piece of America's history, and it will shape America's future.
1: East Rochester, New York, in the mid-1930s and early forties, is a typical blue-collar town. John Musso, son of a large Canadian family, is among the hard-working men at the
3: railroad yards, building and repairing cars. He meets Rhodes, they get married, settle down, and raise a
1: family. Over the years, John's health deteriorates, and he is diagnosed with Addison's disease, a chronic disorder of the adrenal glands that weakens him and
3: leaves spots on his face. When World War II erupts in Europe, very little changes in John's life. He does not know that the Strong Memorial Hospital, where he is treated as an outpatient, has become part of the war effort. The hospital is being used for research by the Manhattan Project the top-secret unit developing the atom bomb. The Manhattan team operates from inside this high-level security building across the street from the hospital. Only authorized personnel are allowed in. Research was determined entirely within the Manhattan Project itself. And it might be determined by Manhattan Project scientists here in Rochester, or it might be the result of directors that came down from Los Alamos or from Oak Ridge, which is where the, the medical chief was headquartered the university would have no ability to look at what kind of research has been
1: done here. John Moussa, like all other patients at the hospital, is oblivious to the government's top-secret activity, and he continues with his routine visits to see his doctor for treatment. In
2: 1945, the war ends. As
3: Allied troops liberate the death camps, the world learns about the horrific experiments conducted by Nazi doctors on prisoners in the camps, experiments that
1: almost always resulted in cruel and painful death.
0: That they were war crimes, that the Nazi doctors could have been tried for murder, was eminently clear But the Americans have the ambition not simply of condemning a war crime, of condemning the war crime committed in the
5: name
1: of medicine. When the War Crime Tribunal is set up in Nuremberg to bring Nazi criminals to justice,
3: special attention is given to these doctors and the experiments they conducted on humans. The result is the formulation of the Nuremberg Code, a
1: universal rule of conduct regarding any human experimentation in years to come.
0: The first principle critical principle of the Nuremberg Code is you don't get to do research on anyone without their permission. The voluntary consent of the subject. Now, obviously, the uh, victims of the uh, Nazi experiment had not given their consent. And Nuremberg quite wonderfully lays out consent as the bedrock principle for human experimentation.
3: The trials of Nazi war criminals make very little impression in Rochester or the United States as a whole So on February 1st, 1946, a doctor that John has never seen
1: before Dr. Samuel Bassett approaches his bed and gives him an injection John assumes that this has to do with the Addison's disease Dr. Bassett does not provide an explanation. But the injection given to John Musso does not contain medication. It's a radioactive substance, plutonium. John Musso is one of 18 patients who are used as human guinea pigs, all
3: injected with small amounts of highly toxic plutonium. The, the interest the plutonium research was a result, more or less, of, of an accident that had happened in Los Alamos, a scientist, uh, a tube of plutonium had had burst in the face of of a a research scientist who had actually ingested some of the material. It was unknown what kind of effects that that was going to have on this individual. But there were other concerns about plutonium, about its toxicity in general. Uh, Robert Oppenheimer and uh, Lewis Hempelman, both of whom were at Los Alamos, were determined that some human experimentation needed to be done to determine animal studies simply were not sufficient. The doctors wanted to find out the plutonium's whereabouts in the human body and observe its mobility. There is no indication on the patient record charts that these injections were ever given these patients. The research was top secret. It was not to be indicated to anyone, not even to the patients, as we as we now know.
0: With poisonous plutonium flowing in his
3: blood, John Musso goes on with his life. His poor health bothers him continuously.
0: It was a constant battle for him to maintain his equilibrium and uh, to fight off very common everyday ailments like colds or infections. He had a very, very severe problem in doing that. And uh, we, we attributed that to Addison's disease. On June 21st,
3: 1973, at the age of 72, John Musso is called back to Strong Memorial, and for the first time, 26 years later, he is told about the plutonium injection. He is asked to do some follow-up tests and gives his consent. He does
1: not say a word to anyone about the plutonium test. On May 6, 1984, at the age of 82, John Musso died taking his secret with him to his grave.
3: But the story doesn't die with it. A few years later and many miles away,
1: Eileen Wilson, a reporter for the Albuquerque Tribune, is researching some
3: newly declassified documents.
4: I was stunning through the report. My eye fell on a footnote. And it says something about human beings who had been injected with plutonium, and I was dumbfounded by this. You have to keep in mind the context in which I was looking at these records. I was all alone in this dusty basement. These reports were 40 and 50 years old, and they were all about dogs who they had been who had been injected or ingested with plutonium, and had developed tumors and all kinds of diseases, and they were sacrifice. So when I saw this uh, reference to humans being injected with plutonium, I immediately thought, my God, uh, how could they have done this? And, And what happened to these people? So I went back to the paper, and that following Monday, I came in and I told the city editor, I said, hey, I found a great story. And I said, it 18 people were injected with plutonium during the Manhattan Project. And he said, well, that's a great story, but that's not what we hired you to look into.
1: But Eileen does not give up. For the next five
3: years, slowly and stubbornly, she continues with her investigations, requesting more declassified documents under the Freedom of Information Act.
4: I got a few fact sheets, very few documents, own experiment, and they said that was all they had. But by then, I knew from other sources that they must have had a tremendous amount of information and that they were simply blowing me off.
3: Five years have passed when Eileen
1: finally uncovers the names of five of the 18 patients. One of them is a John Musso in Rochester, New York. She looks up all the Musos in the Rochester phone book and starts to make calls.
4: Oh, John He
5: would have been about in his 70s or so, maybe close to 80 when he died. He suffered from a disease called asthma. Do you think that he would be amenable to talking with the people?
4: Do you have his telephone number?
0: I was I was shocked. I I I didn't want to accept it. Uh, I
1: I guess I was kind of rude. I mean I just I didn't I didn't know nothing about it. And I said you know what? Well, this can happen in the United States of America. They're going to treat my father like
0: this. They're going to put this stuff in him. And I I I got kind of rallied. I,
1: I said
0: I don't want nothing to do with it. You know I just it just hit me so so hard and so bad that I
2: just I couldn't think right. I just I cried. I just, I couldn't handle it. I just couldn't handle it. See, my my father never told me. I never knew that this happened to him. After the initial shock, the anger set in. And um, the disillusionment, uh, uh, the uh, distrust of the government. Something was stolen from my father.
0: We don't know what, what opportunities that could have come about. After this Addison disease, if you didn't have this petroleum, I mean, there's maybe, like, I felt like I got cheated. I got cheated that we didn't go fishing as much as we did. I got cheated that we didn't go hunting as much as we did. That he wasn't there when I played sports to watch me play. My dad wasn't there.
1: I felt like I got cheated a little bit. I mean, maybe you're saying it sounds selfish, but I don't think it's being selfish because you want to be with your dad. And like other people in the black always used to take me with them, but wasn't my dad. wasn't my dad.
3: Not long after the end of World War II, the American public is drawn into the fervor of the Cold War. Let's face it. The threat of hydrogen bomb warfare is the greatest danger our nation has ever known. Enemy jet bombers carrying nuclear weapons can sweep over a variety of routes and drop bombs on any important target in the United States. The sight of this destruction
1: has affected our way of life in every city,
0: town, and
1: The nuclear race towards a superior atomic bomb pushes research into new frontiers and with it reaches a new dimension in human experimentation. Between 1951 and 1963, the United States conducts 925 tests of atomic and hydrogen bombs in the atmosphere and at underground sites in the Nevada desert.
3: It has been established from government declassified records that as many as 200,000 military personnel participated in these tests. Among them, 3,000 serve at the test site as subjects of research. The military wants to find out how troops perform in a nuclear
1: battlefield. Almost all of them are soldiers who have followed orders given by their superior officers. Very few are actually
3: asked to volunteer. How about radiation? Do you think there's much danger from radiation? Well,
0: radiation
1: is the least of the worries that they you are know, thinking about. It. I think most people thought that
3: radiation was the greatest danger, didn't they? What did they learn? Did work? Prior to our instructions here, we received a very thorough briefing before we even came into close to contact with it. Do you feel that those instructions
0: have given you confidence in your ability?
1: One of the soldiers in these foxholes is Marine pilot, Chuck Brewery.
4: We met in 1948. I was spending my vacation in San Francisco, and with a couple of other ladies from from our office, and we went to the Officers Club for dinner.
5: And
4: that wasn't officers, and we sat around at a table, and the music was played. Just finally asked me to dance, and it. He supposed to me that night without ever even touching me or kissing me or anything because I've waited all my life for someone like you. Soon
3: after, Chuck and Pat get married, and Pat becomes a proud wife of a Marine. In
5: 1957,
1: the United States plans to detonate what will be the largest atomic bomb ever to be tested in the
3: atmosphere code-named Hood, and Chuck was there, close to Ground Zero.
4: He was in the front row trenches. There were ground officers there, and there were pilots. They would rotate. The Marine Corps wanted all of their people to know about the safety of radiation exposure so they could go back and teach the troops. How safe it He didn't tell me anything. He was born in secrecy along with all of the other men. They were told that if they talked about their experiences, that they would be guilty of treason.
3: But the night before Hood is detonated, Chuck calls Pat on the phone.
4: He said, get the kids up at 4.30 in the morning and say to eat, and you'll see something you'll never forget. I saw Hood. I saw light bright light in the sky, which slowly did That's the only time we ever talked about that experience. In
3: 1963, nuclear tests in the atmosphere come to an end due to a test ban treaty. Soldiers go home to their bases and families. In time, many retire and start civilian life records about the possible lingering effect of their exposure to deadly radiation are kept
1: secret. So is classified information about the nuclear fallout carried by winds, dust, clouds, and rain that in the 1950s covers all
4: 50 states. One morning we woke up and and while he was uh, applying his uh, underarm deodorant, he noticed there was a large lump on his arm. And so we immediately went to the doctors.
3: The doctors do tests, which show that Chuck suffers from a terminal form of cancer called lymphosarcoma. The doctor informs Pat by telephone.
4: I was totally unprepared, of course. And I, I didn't know what to do. I was there alone in the house. I tried to figure out how was to tell the kids. We four children. How was I like going to tell Chuck? So I managed to do all that. And so we then went to an oncologist, and he started chemotherapy. And he did pretty well for the first six months. And then it was downhill. He died from a lymphoma.
2: I was devastated, my children, his family, his brothers and sisters, such a waste,
4: such a horrible waste.
2: Chuck, who
1: was exposed to the radiation in 1957, dies 20 years later. Pat scatters his ashes near their home along this Southern California beach.
4: Before he died, he um, contacted an attorney. It was at that time, for the first time, Chuck told me uh, something about his exposure.
1: With her lawyer, Pat follows up on Chuck's revelation about his exposure to radiation. Trying to gain access to classified information would become an agonizing and an uphill battle with the federal government. It takes Pat years of research and legal proceedings just to obtain her husband's military and medical records. She is not alone. Thousands of other families of atomic veterans spend years requesting declassification of government records, trying to prove that they qualify for compensation.
4: The government is waiting for us all to die. Most of the men have already died or they're on their way. There's a lot of widows that have died. We're all old. The women don't know the history of this whole thing. There are no records. And when they ask for compensation for disability and indemnity compensation from the VA, they say, prove it. They've got the the documents. We don't have the documents. They've got the proof. We don't have the proof.
1: The military establishment's fear of a nuclear war couples later on with fear of biological and chemical wolves.
3: What if the Soviets spread deadly bacteria over highly populated areas or spray into the air invisible chemicals that can kill thousands on contact? A decision is made in high places. Tests are
2: needed. San Francisco Bay,
3: California, 1950. During seven days in September, the Army simulates a bacteriological attack on the city. Declassified Army documents reveal that in six such attacks, large amounts of bacteria called Serratia marcescens are sprayed towards San Francisco from a small Navy boat in the bay. carried by the wind, the airborne bacteria spread over a large area. The Army wants to know how far the bacteria can go. These declassified maps of the actual test show the extent of the area that is covered. The Army
1: decided to do what was called a vulnerability test program. And the effort was, over a period of 20 years, actually, between 1949 and 1969, when hundreds of tests were conducted over populated areas,
3: to see whether, by spraying germs and certain chemicals, whether they would endanger a large population. The army did spray a lot of bacteria
1: around, although they weren't the highly dangerous kind that would be used as an actual weapon. The bacteria that they used did have some health risks. The invisible attack would probably have gone undetected, but something goes terribly wrong. A few days after, 11 people are admitted to the
3: Stanford Medical Center in San Francisco. They are all suffering from a severe bacterial infection. One of the patients, Ed Nevin, dies. I was nine years old in 1950 when uh, when he died. My mother was a nurse. She was actually helping to attend to him. And it was a terrible sickness. He was going from uh, from high fevers to chills. He had uh, hallucinations. And so it was a very, very serious infection and fever that was causing all that in him. The Serratia marcescens infection is so unusual for the doctors and scientists at the hospital that three of them team
1: up and write a scientific article about it. At the time, the doctors are unaware of the tests the Army had conducted using the same type bacteria just days before. The scientific article is published in October 1951 in the Journal of the American Medical Association, reaching a very limited readership. However, the Army does see the article, and a panel of four military scientists reviews the case.
5: Some
1: months after they concluded, and this is a very strange conclusion: that the army's bacteria and the bacteria that caused the infections in the hospital were not of the same strain or the same nature, and that any any relationship was apparently coincidental. That was a real stretch.
3: It takes 25 more years before the story finds its way out into the open.
1: I carried the morning paper on December 22nd, 1976, to the uh, art station.
3: I was reading uh, the front page right, with some interest because of my work as a trial lawyer. The front page told a story of testing that was done in 1950 in San Francisco. And I was surprised, but actually... Somewhat cynical as a trial lawyer, nothing surprises me anymore, was sort of my then-35-year-old attitude. I uh, turned the page and was shocked
1: upon my grandfather's picture. And they related the story that, in fact, he
3: was the only one who died from the testing, that he died from serratio marcescens, the very bacterium that was sprayed in the air.
1: Nevin consults with his family and decides to take the federal government to court trial begins on March 16th, 1981, more than 30 years after the actual event took place.
3: The heart of the case to me was that you can't test uh, American people like guinea pigs. I mean, if we have anything in our country, we proudly look at uh, with disdain upon the practices of the Soviet Union and the iron curtain the countries of those days in the midst of the Cold War. So the heart of the case to me was this, this terrible discovery that... Uh, We were no better
1: than what we were describing. Three months later, on May 20th, the Honorable Judge Conti rules against Nevin on all counts. He concludes that the Army's decision to test falls within the discretionary function exception, which gives the United States government immunity from lawsuits on such matters. The United States Supreme Court later upholds this ruling.
3: What would have been required to win this case would have been to overcome hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition of governmental immunity that we got from uh, from England, and that was a king. And it was still a remnant of our law, even in America, with our form of government. And his honor at least felt it became clear that uh, we couldn't overcome that, uh, that special protection the government has. You just can't sue the government for these important matters, uh, says the immunity doctrine. And so what it would have taken to to win the case would have been to overcome that immunity doctrine, and at least in these judges it wasn't so. San Francisco is not the only city targeted for a simulated biological attack. Declassified documents show that two years later, a similar test on a much larger scale takes place in Minneapolis.
4: This is the house I grew up in. This is 29th of Clinton. The school is behind me, about a block and a half. I played on the playground. All of my friends were in the neighborhood.
5: It's
4: a very middle class working neighborhood. Most of our mothers stayed at home the typical 50s housewives. Our fathers were working. We were in and out of each other's houses, all the time running in and out with children. It was a very nice, safe, secure neighborhood.
3: In the summer of 1952, the Army turns this safe and secure environment into a testing ground, simulating
1: an attack with bacteriological weapons. During a three-month period, from 8 in the morning until midnight, hundreds of military personnel spray clouds of zinc cadmium sulfide over Minneapolis. Zinc cadmium sulfide is a material that's totally synthetic. It was created specifically for the purpose of doing these types of experiments because it was completely different from anything else that was in the air.
3: The airborne powder is sprayed from trucks in the streets and from canisters on rooftops in both commercial and residential areas. The Army then monitors how far it travels and where it lands. No one is exempt from exposure to the zinc cadmium sulfide particles, and the Clinton Elementary School, no longer in existence but similar to this school, is one of the targets the Army subjects to massive spraying day after day.
4: It was a day that many were waiting for a chance to tell the scientists about health In nineteen
1: seventy seven, KTCA, a public television station in Minneapolis, breaks the story about the army
3: test, focusing attention on alleged high rate of health problems at the Clinton School.
4: My first reaction was disbelief. I thought, No never, this is this is not true. <laughs> I was in denial for uh many, many months and during that denial time I was I was really determined I'm gonna find out everything about this.
1: She is not alone. Public hearings soon followed.
0: Uh,
3: many come to hear testimonies, to listen to the experts.
4: Total disclosure and nothing but
3: Diane's own memories start coming back.
4: I vividly remember being lined up, going into a music room. There was an older gentleman sitting in a chair with a light wand in his hand, and he was passing with over our bodies on the outside of our clothing. I started contacting my old school pals. I started keeping a list of illnesses. The bottom came for me when I found out that four of my pals that lived directly across the street from me on Clinton Avenue had all died of cancer. These are four separate families in no way related to health-wise. They died within a year of each other back in the early 80s when these um, people would have been in their 40s. And I thought, wow, this doesn't quite seem like a coincidence to me.
1: During her research of declassified documents, Diane finds that Army doctors came back to the Clinton School the following year, 1953. They found a high rate of asthma, respiratory problems, and some cases of pneumonia. A report of the Minnesota Health Department also found that in the same year, the rate of infant mortality in
3: Minneapolis is unusually high. The causes listed are pneumonia and other respiratory problems. The toxicity of zinc cadmium sulfide is virtually unknown today, just as it was in the 1950s. If it remained in its native zinc cadmium sulfide state it
0: probably presents a low toxicity to people and to the environment but we don't know to what extent the zinc cadmium sulfide might be acted upon
3: by bacteria or other agents in the environment to break it down and if it broke down uh, there is a possibility that the breakdown products are much more toxic than the zinc cadmium sulfide itself
1: as of today, there is no conclusive evidence that the zinc cadmium sulfide is responsible for the ailments reported by the Clinton School's graduates, and the Army still maintains that the chemical used for the simulated test is perfectly safe.
4: They have not been forthcoming. They have not been helpful. The fluoroscoping, they totally denied. And I kept insisting, and I said, look, I have report after report from all various um uh, Groups of students that, that remember the same thing. Then the Army uh, said, Oh, yes, there was some fluoroscoping. So, from the very beginning, it's been up to us to discover what happened, confront the Army, and we're still waiting for the medical reports that we requested six years ago.
0: The Department of Defense,
3: their conviction that this is a perfectly safe material is an oversimplification because we do not have any information about the possible long-term health effects of this particular material.
4: Also the
1: the viewpoints
4: of the public
1: who were exposed
3: to this material
4: uh, and the
3: anxieties that that have been expressed by the public have not been addressed at all effectively by
4: uh, our government agencies. (laughs) It completely changed my memory of my childhood, which I thought was rather idyllic and very middle middle America. To know that um, these tests were done at my school um, absolutely uh, was a shock to me.
3: After the tests in San Francisco and Minneapolis, the Army mounts another test to see how the bacteria behave underground. The target, the New
0: York City subway system.
3: Over a three-day period in the summer of 1966, plainclothes army agents simulate a bacterial attack on unsuspecting commuters on the Broadway
1: subway line. In their briefcases, the agents carry
3: ordinary-looking light bulbs filled with bacteria called Bacillus subtilis variant nature, a non-toxic microorganism. The agents enter the subway station and wait for the confusion of the train arrival.
1: The train pulls to the platform. The agents discreetly open their briefcases, taking out the light bulbs,
0: then drop the bulbs on the ground, releasing
5: bacteria
2: into the air.
0: Unlike San Francisco or Minneapolis,
1: there are no immediate reports of any ill effects from the spring. We can safely assume that while some people might have gotten ill, it wasn't the numbers were not huge. Furthermore, the number of Serious illnesses was probably minimal or maybe zero. We don't know,
3: because no one was monitored. Just how many Americans have been sprayed from the sea, land, and underground over this 20-year period? Have there been other similar tests in later years? It is hard to tell. Many details are still kept under secrecy in
0: classified government documents. We don't know the precise number, but
1: millions of people at one time or another during the 1950s and 60s were inhaling the the biological or chemical agents that the Army had been
3: spraying. In the late 1970s and through the 1980s, Congress conducts hearings and demands further declassification of documents in an effort to learn more about the risks involved. The
1: story about John Musa, The other 17 patients injected with plutonium in the late 1940s finally finds its way into the open. November 1993, after five years of research, the Albuquerque Tribune runs Eileen Wilson's story on the front page of the paper.
4: When the first installment came up, I sat there really expecting to be deluged with phone calls. I thought, this is so outrageous that people are going to call me. I didn't get one phone call. The story really didn't hit the press until Hazel O'Leary mentioned it in the press conference in Washington, D.C. I'd like to tell you that what I've been told about these experiments, what I think I know and have processed with respect to these 18 citizens of our country, leave me both appalled, shocked, and deeply saddened. But if the government had, in fact, been responsible for, had been the proximate cause for harm or danger uh, to the lives of any of our citizens,
5: then
2: the government ought to be
4: in a position to own that and also to compensate for it. Now, the first time I uttered those words, there was a firestorm. I had no idea that anyone would think that, that was a bizarre, strange thing for a cabinet office. Anyway. Uh-huh.
1: O'Leary's statement is so unusual that the national media picks the story up and the
3: Department of Energy is overwhelmed with thousands of phone calls each day. She starts an in-house investigation at the Department of Energy.
1: The task is not an easy one. It requires a review of millions
3: of documents in government archives and warehouses all over the United States. Many of them are still classified. O'Leary brings the issue before
1: President Clinton, and in 1994 he forms a presidential advisory committee to look into human experimentation with radiation. The committee
3: does not investigate the bacteriological and chemical tests. After a year of intensive work, the committee submits their report to the president.
4: If this committee's work is to mean anything, it has to be that 50 years from now, there does not have to be another presidential committee charged with investigating allegations of abuses of human subjects.
1: The report reviews the history of human experimentation and investigates ethical standards, but it fails to satisfy the expectations of the victims.
4: Essentially what the committee did was say, these experiments are wrong, but no one is to blame. So they did not find one doctor or one institution guilty. And as far as this large community of people who had been uh, abused and unethically used in these experiments, uh, the committee recommended that only the families of the plutonium patients be compensated came out with a report that does have some good information, but families of people who feel that they were used in these experiments are essentially still a too when it comes to getting these documents. I think if I were on the other side, I'd, I'd be feeling the same thing. Uh, especially since the experiment, the effort, had, been, had begun with such lofty expressions of ideals from me, from the President of the United States, and from our Ruth Faden who chaired that committee. We over promised because we were we were so naive we didn't know the government couldn't and didn't know how to deliver. We were all very
5: naive.
0: This morning I signed an executive order instructing every arm and agency of our government that conducts, supports or regulates research involving human beings to review immediately their procedures.
1: Some new procedures
3: are already
1: in
0: place.
3: So there really aren't any serious risks to the study. A lot of people have tickling or a gag.
1: Doctors who conduct such experiments
3: have to explain in detail the nature of the study and obtain a written consent from the patient.
4: for me, we please, we are excited. Things are, are very different today, and, and actually, our institution doesn't accept any type of um, secret or classified research. And we also retain the right to publish on any of our on any of our research. Uh, DBTs or
3: uh, ethical review boards are set up at medical research centers to openly discuss and approve experiments on humans.
4: If by doing some great experiment or great project that the government proposes means compromising an individual's well-being, it would never get approved.
0: So today, on behalf of another generation of American leaders and another generation of American citizens, the United States of America offers a sincere apology to those of our citizens who were subjected to these
3: experiments, to their families, and to their communities.
4: Given what I've learned about medical research, human nature, and the federal government, that it, that, that in 50 years' time, reporters will be writing about unethical experiments that were conducted in the 90s. And the reason I think that is because human beings are human beings. And there there will always be a few people that step over the line. Anyone who perpetrates an act Uh,
0: assuming that it is secret and will remain secret, has to know that sooner or later, truth will happen. Sooner or later, we will find out. And so as you move to act, understand that it's not today or tomorrow or even next year. Eventually, the historical record will catch up. Uh, And we will know what you did.
1: Human experimentation hasn't been limited to the United States. The British government recently admitted that millions were secretly sprayed with a toxic chemical in the 1950s and 60s. Military officials conducting germ warfare experiments thought they were spraying a harmless substance, but later discovered the chemicals may have contributed to medical problems. Critics accused the government of gambling with public health.
2: Okay, so that is the conclusion
1: of the video um, Declassified Human Experimentation. Um, Guess three, uh, since you and I are the only one in the call, I'm going to post this in the chat, so if you want to share it, look at it again, share it with others, you're welcome to do so. It is important that we um, expose what's being done to us, and you know this video clearly shows you how hard it is to get the information from the government while these things uh taken place or even long after they have taken place and um you know if it wasn't for the testimony of some of the victims, you know their significant other their spouses wouldn't have known what was happening to them, and yet uh, the government. Uh, refuse to take any responsibility for what they have done. Uh, I mean, it's just atrocious. Uh, it's like what's happening on us today, you know? And, you know, we're not the the first. We're definitely not going to be the last. And I think we have to continue. We have to do our part and continue to expose what's happening. so hopefully it will change for future generations. Well, hopefully, you know? And I think one of the first things that we, as the people, have to do—people have to wake up and stop being followers, you know, stop being uh, so easy to be manipulated. It's not it's, and it's no fault of their own. But I think when when you become educated in these matters, and you educate people in these matters, you give them a better chance of being awakened, being uh, and and not being uh, exposed to the lies and the manipulation that the government does to get them to participate uh, in these. Sort of um, experimentation, right? I'm talking about uh, civilian perpetrators, okay?
2: And so, um, you know, we have to apply, right? Well, okay. It's uh, I'm gonna uh, end the call, and um, I'll be here again
1: next Tuesday. Yeah, hopefully, there'll be a little bit more people on the call. I had mean, I caught a few people last week, but it's I am back. I was dropped from the call. Hi, Anne. Uh, It's been a while since, uh, you know, were you on the call last week? I know someone from Texas was on the call last week, but it wasn't me. I was asking if if it was in, but it was someone else. Uh, How is everything? I hope everything is going well. Uh, How is your son? I hope he's okay. Um, You know, considering our circumstance, I hope everything is is okay with you for the most part. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, they, they usually do that to me sometimes where uh, I'll try type it in the chat and it takes a while for it to be displayed. What, what can, you know, <clears throat> what can we do? All right. I mean, these people have their hands and
2: everything, uh, you know. Um, <clears throat> oh, really? Wow. You're a senior already. Oh.
1: He's gonna be off to college soon. Well, I know you prepared him for the real world. You know, <laughs> the world the 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 the, the true, uh, I guess,
2: uh, understanding of the real world. So he he'll, he'll be fine. And um, well, that's great. Right. That's great. Uh, and
1: know, my, my oldest, he's just entering high school. And um, he is, you know, he's going to an okay school, you know. He goes to a, his mom sent him to a Catholic school. I don't know why, but, you know, he's going to a Catholic school, which, you know, if it all up to me. I, he wouldn't be going there. But they're okay, you know, where he's at.
2: Okay. Okay, so how's he? How's he? He's doing. Is he? Is he okay? Over some. You know. Let, let me. Let me end the um. The the recording. Let's hold on a sec.